Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Mystery Jets and producer Matt Twaits to talk about how they recorded and produced the album A Billion Heartbeats. Mystery Jets are an English band from Eel Pie Island in Twickenham, comprised of singer-guitarist and keyboardist Blaine Harrison, guitarist William Reese, bassist Jack Flanagan, and drummer Capil Trividi. The group was formed by school friends Blaine and William, along with the help of Blaine's dad, Henry. The trio quickly expanded, enrolling Kai Fish on bass and Tamara Pierce Higgins on the organ. Initially working under the name The Misery Jets, the band's name was quickly altered to Mystery Jets after a chance spelling mistake painted on the group's drum kit. After a number of lineup changes, the band finally settled with drummer Kappel, and in 2006, after releasing an EP and single on Transgressive Records, they signed with 679 and released their debut album, Making Dens. The band's second album, 21, saw a shift in direction for the group, moving away from psychedelic and progressive rock towards more of a pop-rock-influenced sound, which led to chart success. Over the years, the group has collaborated with an impressive roster of artists and producers, including Laura Marling, Florence Welch and Errol Alcan. They have now released six albums, and for the last few, co-produced alongside Matt Twaits. Matt Twaits is a producer, engineer, composer and bass player from Brighton, with career highlights including work with The Saturdays and Lily Allen. Matt became fascinated with music as a child. Delving through his parents' record collection, he would spend hours listening to artists such as The Beatles, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell and Kate Bush. His career in music was kick-started as a bass player performing as part of the band The Electric Soft Parade, who rose to prominence with their Mercury-nominated debut album Holes in the Wall. Having toured extensively with that band, Matt also turned his hand to engineering, initially starting out at Metway Studios in Brighton, owned by The Levelers. It was here he gained his first credit as a producer, working with the artist Foxes. Since then, Matt has brought his skills as a producer, engineer, mixer and musician to an array of artists, including the likes of Superfood and Rose Eleanor Dougal. His team up with Mystery Jets in 2013 brought about the development of their own London studio. Today, I'm here at the Brain Yard with producer Matt Twaits and Blaine from Mystery Jets to talk about how A Billion Heartbeats was recorded and produced. And what better way to start that conversation than by hearing something from the record. This is Petty Drone. It is Petty Drone by the Mystery Jets from A Billion Heartbeats and 
Here I am in the brain yard with Blaine Harrison. Hello. And Matt Twaits. Hi. And this is where it all happened. A Billion Heartbeats was recorded here. The brain yard. What an extraordinary name for a studio. Yeah, well, as we were discussing earlier, the name preceded us arriving here, wherein the slightly dungeon-like basement of what used to be, in Victorian times, a tram shed. So um, we don't know quite how it all was set up, but I suppose, I mean, going back 70, 80 years, there were still trams in London. And so this building was used to work on the on the trams. And uh, at some point it was converted into music studios and... I've sort of bumped into various people over the years who said, oh, the brain yard. There's this, <laughs> there's this sort of, uh, this sort of folklore legend that precedes us arriving here. Bad things happened here in the 90s. Well, I, I, I feel like lots of, not a lot of sleep was had um, when people were working here. But um, we had a studio previous to this one in North London, which we had to leave in rather a hurry after making our last album, Curve the Earth. And I think... London rent prices being what they are, we sort of assumed we wouldn't have another studio. So we just put all our stuff in Big Yellow Storage. Shout out to Big Yellow. Um, <laughs> and, uh, Big Yellow. But then one day this opportunity came up to move in here and uh, the door was actually padlocked shut. We had to get in a locksmith to cut open the door. We came in and it was literally a case of just plonking our mixing desk into whatever this is called trestle a trestle and um setting up some speakers and we started recording the album the next week wow that's amazing so it's really all set up for you to just kind of slot in yeah. and and carry on and it's interesting we're in clerkenwell so up the road is king's cross and when you get to this place you have no idea that it's anything is here at all so you step away from the street and suddenly you're into this this open space which would have been where the trams were fixed or something washed <laughs> and then down this staircase into what does look like a bunker really i mean yeah. it has a kind of bunker like feel you can definitely feel like you've been down here for bunker lengths of time as well yeah there's not a lot of sort of airflow <laughs> especially when there's been you know five men working through the night mm. but we like it and i think especially like part of the record was made through last summer and I think, you know, we've been really spoiled with really nice summers in London the last few years. And I think in a way, if we did have windows, we'd probably be in beer gardens more often. Yeah, well, exactly. We'd be less inclined to spend such long hours yeah. and days down here. So it's sort of a blessing. And because it's a big old tram shed, there's some really interesting, big echoey spaces that we utilised. Yeah, that's interesting. And so, I mean, the two of you have a long working relationship and friendship, um, but you co-produced a billion heartbeats. Yeah. So how does that work? Well, I started working with the band on the last record on Curve of the Earth. The band wanted to sort of pre-produce the record. Exactly. And I lived around the corner from Blaine at the time. And I sort of was looking for a studio space as well. So we sort of combined forces and then sort of I started engineering and then co-producing the album by Osmosis. So we just sort of kept the same team mm. for this record. I guess it depends. Some records you go into as a producer or sound engineer and that's all sort of sorted at the beginning it's like right i'm the producer that's my role and other records sort of happen a bit more organically or you know you've all been making music for long enough that kind of everyone's doing a bit of everything so by the end it's like right who did what and it, it was just sort of evident out of, over the workflow and of the record that kind of me and blaine had done it together with the others but you know 
we were here the most. <laughs> yeah. And I think what's interesting about when you do spend so much time together in this kind of setup is that you start to have this, you know, almost telepathic relationship where Matt will suggest something and I'll say, I knew you were thinking that. <laughs> and you always want to put yeah, bagpipes on tunes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, whereas I think in a more traditional producer band relationship that we've explored on previous records, there's a different relationship in those environments. I think the producer is a more... Um, authoritarian an figure. An authoritarian yeah. figure. And you... Have you no authority. <laughs> well, no, you have to... <laughs> I think if you're, you're in with the producer who's been hired to cut a record with you and you know yeah. quite often the record label has chosen the producer when you have an idea you, there's almost this thing where you kind of think am i going to sound stupid for suggesting this you know is this a well-considered thought out idea in this environment that's never the case we, it's everything is a conversation um yeah which is why they've both taken considerable lengths of time not just that reason but having your own space and everyone's sort of having autonomy in the decision making allows you to sort of explore a lot more stuff than if you had a month in a studio yeah you know which generally is a plus yeah i think we've made records more like that where we're where we're sort of working on a clock but i think i've certainly really relished the freedom of being able to go down the musical rabbit hole trying everything any idea that it's comes sort of to the us. dream of making records is that you can explore every avenue it's also can sometimes turn into a nightmare, but <laughs> I always think back to, for some reason, we did a couple of records on Rough Trade a few years ago and Jeff Travis obviously um, started Rough Trade, who I love. But I remember when we first signed to the label, he said, whatever you do, don't build your own studio. <laughs> <laughs> How many have we had in the last four years? <laughs> three. three. Yeah, three. Three, yeah. And I, but, but I wonder what's changed in that time because I think really... In 2019, a studio can be a laptop and a sound card and a mic. I mean, it could be it could be like a Zoom recorder on your holiday. A studio can be kind of whatever you want. So I think I think actually, if we hadn't have been able to build our own studios, I don't know if we'd have made the kind of records that we have. Yeah, and there are studios and studios. In mm. the, you know, you could build your own studio and have amazing wood paneling and and all this kind of stuff that could take years to construct. Yeah, we've and, done that as well. <laughs> <laughs> or you can find a bunker and just get a slot into yeah. a former yeah. rave uh, studio yeah. or something. A rave cave. Yeah. A rave cave. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it's like. So, I mean, we're going to talk about three songs from uh, the latest Mystery Jets album, A Billion Heartbeats, the sixth album from Mystery Jets. And obviously, so you have this previous experience together. You've got a great working relationship. You'd already recorded one album together as well. So for this record, how did it differ? What Because the first song we're going to look at is Screwdriver, and that's the opening song on the album. It's also the first single from the album as well. Does that mean it's, it was one of the first songs you started working on? Well, interestingly enough, Screwdriver came from a jam, which isn't something that often happens with us, that... Often songs are kind of written by myself or by Will in a more isolated environment and then kind of br brought to the table and sort of pulled into shape in a, in a more like a rehearsal room environment. But in the case of Screwdriver, it all stemmed from a jam, which I think we figured out last night was recorded in May. Just, just after Curve came out. May 2016. So right. it's actually, it almost could have been on Curve of the Earth. And I don't know, are we able to play... With the jam, it was. Oh, you've got the jam. We've wow. got yeah. we've got your 
also got your original voice note for the riff yeah which preceded the jam right, the jam okay. is then influenced by the voice note yeah and the voice note i haven't listened to it for a while but I, if i can remember rightly it's me humming what i thought would be a vocal melody but it ended up being the bass line which is interesting yeah very sometimes. so this is the voice note So that is you, Blaine, slapping your thighs yeah. and singing to yourself. Now, what I love about the sound of that is that it sounds like I've gone to Papua New Guinea and I've got a sound <laughs> recording and I'm an anthropologist and yeah. I'm bringing it back to the world to yeah. share um, a- another side of culture. But this yeah. is you. Where would you have been when you were doing I've that? I've got absolutely no idea. I often, actually often when I'm, I drive and often when I'm driving, I have my phone, which is obviously not very road safety uh, conscious <laughs> but i often have to just find somewhere to pull over and grab my phone and i'll, yeah, I'll right. make a voice note <laughs> that's good no i'm good i'm glad that you're mentioning yeah. the public safety angle <laughs> yeah it's very important so you could have done it in that way so an idea comes into your head and you just yes. want to get it down as soon as possible yeah. just to re- capture that moment um and record that idea exactly that's really interesting and so, often you don't know what what it is you know there's something could be a hook or it could be a vocal melody or a bass line or rhythm idea. And what did you think, Matt, when you heard it? I mean, it, I didn't like, hear that. This right, was all okay. done away for me. I was, uh, we'd finished Curve and um, frankly <laughs> had a bit of a break. From yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I think I was pretty much about to have a baby. So yes, you were. Um, I was doing that. I wasn't there for the jam either. I think the first thing I heard was Blaine's demo of this sort of the following year. Right. Where but we the had next- a little demo meetup beginning of that year right we could probably show yeah. what that voice well, note turned well, into yeah let's hear, so the, jam hear the jam so yeah. you'd have taken the voice note to the band did you actually play that to them or did it was that just really a note to yourself and then you tried putting this on I, an instrument i think it would have been a note to myself and then i think we had a day in the studio where we would just wanted to try out some new ideas and i would have said probably to jack oh, i've got this melody and he got on the synth it was probably the pro one which is in here somewhere Mm. Um, which is it? Which is a? It's a sequential circuits seventies analog mono synth, which we use for pretty much all the bass lines on the record, all the synth bass lines on the record. So I think he would have jumped on that, and he translated that what you just heard, whatever that was, <laughs> into a bass line. Right. Which is we can probably hear now. Well, that's quite a good buzz. So that's the Fantastic. that was him trying to translating what yeah. I had in mind. And was that Jack it. speaking? It sounded like Jack yeah, speaking. I think it was. Jack. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. It sounds yeah. great. Yeah. So that that's that's I love that idea that you know you can see the direct evolution from a a little voice note into that Pro One baseline. And then I think we we've got another recording which is the rest of the guys jumping in on top of that jam, and, and it's and you can start to hear the riff turn into what it became. Excellent. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) 
I don't know what's really, going on with the guitars, but yeah, yeah, there's some wailing going on. Yeah, Cap's bringing some like triplet. Yeah, dun, dun, dun. yeah, yeah. But you get the idea. What, what <laughs> interestingly, I think um, we when we started playing it, the way we treated it was in this kind of very riffy sort of stonery. With those are the sort of kind of musical clothes we dressed it up in, and I think wanting to subvert that, Caps, our drummer, then started trying out kind of a much more disjointed drum beat over it and he's he's a big Dilla fan and I think that he was trying to sort of channel some of that do we have a voice note of that? Um, we have a couple of other voice notes we've got you writing the top line over the verse mm. and then we have a jam of Caps doing those drums over a different section of the song okay Right, so these are all the different procedures before yeah. you ever got to a demo stage that you then shared with Matt. Exactly. Oh, and it'd be really great to yeah. be able to hear some of these. Though. So this is you trying to... Trying to write a vocal trying, melody. Succeeding, yeah. let's say that. Because we had, we had the sort of riff section, but I realised it needed a B section. It needed to go somewhere. And I had some chords, but I didn't have a vocal melody, as you can hear from this. <laughs> <laughs> it's starting to appear. Well, anybody who's heard the song will immediately recognise the sound of that, I think. And obviously we'll, we'll play the song and people will hear it again. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting. So that's that's the, the third step so in the journey the, of the so, evolution so of Screwdriver, really, isn't it? That's yeah, you writing so. the verse over your or the beginnings of your demo backing track. That's it. I think at that point I must have stitched it all together on a laptop, but I didn't have a top line yet. So I was sort of trying to throw things around. And I often do that thing where you just mumble and then you try to translate the mumble into real tangible words. And then what happened next? So you went back and had another jam with so, the band. I think you would have finished your demo and then the sort of Dilla verse drums idea came about in pre-production. So I think I would have been around at that point. Mm. Um, the chorus, big rock section drums were always pretty set and fine. And we went pretty much around the houses with the verse drums for quite a few months of last year. And we sort of wanted a kind of hip hop sampler sort of sp12 kind of those days of hip-hop kind of sound and in quite a roundabout way because particularly when you listen back to those dealer records i think i'm right in saying that he wasn't using quantizing or was it the way that the notes would be quantized no it's not really using the quantizing and it's also a feel uh, it's a feel thing but yeah, he would be I mean, he would have been playing on pads yeah and i think caps comes much more from from a kit background rather than using samplers and so he wanted to translate that idea into playing on a kit and we wanted you know we wanted an interesting beat in some way either sonically or that, that world of production sort of hip-hop production in the verse just because we were like you know, yeah it's, yeah it's cool isn't it <laughs> what, what, what is quantizing oh sorry so quantizing is when you uh Say you're playing something on a, a MIDI instrument and it's not very in time with the click. You use quantizing to move the MIDI to onto the grid. the grid, basically. Right. But I think 
some of Dilla's stuff he didn't use the quantizing so it's, it's his actual playing and it's all sort of cut up samples so when some of them are a bit laggy and so it creates this sort of lolloping mm. beat or if you quantized it it'd be really rigid and robotic but yeah the next thing we can play you is Caps trying out that idea in pre-production before we went off to record the drums for the record yeah let's hear some of that It was around this time that we also decided the song needed another section which we felt should be this kind of floydy guitar mm. solo section so actually what you're hearing is caps trying the verse drums out but underneath the solo which is a bit confusing and had you written any words at this stage i don't think so yeah i think i knew the song was called screwdriver right named after the drink no, I don't know where, where it came from. But maybe it's worth hearing where we actually got to with the drums and the verse, because actually the... Yeah, we ended up not even doing that at all. <laughs> we, we, I think it, when we were recording the drums, we were sort of quite tight for time, and this is a really big song, and I think we gave Caps like half an hour to try it, because that's all we had, and to be fair to him, it's really difficult to do. And then we sort of got it back and started messing around with... We tried loads of things. We tried to sort of program it. He tried it on pads. I cut some stuff up. And we were never... We're not Dilla. Totally convinced. <laughs> we're not Dilla. We make indie rock records. So. But I think we what we ended up doing that was exciting is we found that by reversing the beat and playing it behind caps, playing it the right way around, it kind of created something interesting and intriguing in a slightly different way that also spoke to a more kind of hip-hop reference point are we allowed to say what we called it yeah well it was kind of miss jackson wasn't it that yeah was, that you, was you right. know by outcast yeah. it it's got this like like reverse kick and snare kind of sucks so we need to sneak that idea in yeah yeah um so I'll, I'll just go through the sort of sections yeah, of the drum kit from the so there's like a kick and snare recorded on its own and then the hats part recorded on its own and then i'll add in the reverse stuff Right, so those are the reverse bits. And this is from when Caps was forced to do everything in just half an hour. Or, yeah, the kick yeah. and snare is. Right, yeah. And then just chopped up a hats part, and then we, we'd sort of arranged this sort of backwards the kick and snare part. And there's also another little, there was just like a guitar harmonic that caught our ear one. Well, it must have been late at night. We were like, really? oh, let's loop that as well. Okay. Is that in there as well? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. cool. It's just, you can hear it in the track, I think. Can you? Yeah. And this is all searching for the right <laughs> rhythm for the verses. It's just of the, the verses, song. yeah. And it's yeah. just the verses. So we literally, we, we actually built, I think the song's at least comprised of two different drum kits. So we, we had. Um, oh, yeah, it's a completely different It's a completely kit, different it? drum kit. So we stripped the drums, took loaded them out, and then we got another, we got a different drum kit, like a much smaller, smaller. Punchier sort of jazz kit. Jazz kit in for the verses. And we used fewer mics. I think we just used three mics. Um, whereas in the chorus, what you're hearing is much more like full-on LA, yeah. Dave Grohl vibes. Do you want to hear the difference between those two yes, drum kits? Yes, please. That would be great. Yeah. 
So this is the bigger kit with lots of all the room mics turned up, lots of air in the room. And then totally different drum sound here, bringing in the reverse elements as well. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting because it conjures up that Aerosmith Run DMC type <laughs> it does, feel, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Wow, amazing. So, I mean, this is painstakingly putting <laughs> the whole track together for this song. Mm. Because when you listen to Screwdriver as a song, you know, you pick up on all the different elements in it, but you also listen to the words and the lyric and the whole feel and the, the, the vibe and the meaning. Mm. Um, so it's quite interesting that the words were going to be added later, that the, what a lot of people would think of as the song yeah. was still to come while yeah. you were still focusing on, on all of this. It's exactly. Quite interesting. Exactly. So at what you, point you, did you think, right, we've done enough, we need to concentrate? So I, I think actually at this point, because we did, what, four weeks of pre-production, just running through the songs with the band running through them, because, you know, a big part of this record, I think for you, Blaine, was you wanted to go out and be able to play every single one of these songs live and have an audience react. I think, yep. you know, Curve of the Earth is quite introspective and very sort of studio-based, which was we achieved exactly what we wanted to do with it. But I think you found when you went out and played some of the songs, it was like sometimes audiences were quite contemplative to it because it's quite a contemplative record in that mm. way. And you kind of wanted to have more of a... Yeah, like the am mission... Am I wrong? The mission, no, I think you're right. right. I think the mission statement before <laughs> yeah. we started this record was to make a big, heavy rock record. I think that we kind of had our heads together on that. Um, I don't think that's what we've ended up making, but there's definitely shades of that. And yeah. I think Screwdriver, because it was one of the first ones that came out, it set a precedent. It set a it? precedent, and I think that's also why we realised it had to go at the beginning of the record. Because when we tried it elsewhere, it seemed to sort of just destroy anything either side. Yeah, it. It, everything's out of balance. Yeah, as soon as you sort of it ate its neighbours up. There you go. Yeah, but yeah. So we did pre-production for four weeks with the band, and then we just went and tracked. I think what we did is we did four days of drums. Yeah. So a track a day, and then spent. When you say when he's saying a track a day, he doesn't mean a kick drum on day one and then a snare. On <laughs> that was curve of the earth. Yeah, this one we were a lot more, we were a lot quicker. So, no, so we do a song a day, do the drum tracks, and then we take those away and do like four weeks' work on those four in songs here. in here. Right. So those drum recordings would have been made at the buff, at buff the yeah. studio um, in West Ham. Yeah, which and we then, chose because it had a very nice, very lively. It had a tiled floor and it had it was yeah. bright you could get a nice dry sound or a big spacious sound as most studios are designed. So we're quite, quite the four you know, front runners in that. Um, yeah. So we do four tracks of drums and then go and overdub onto those for like a month. And then yeah. we, we go back to buff and do four, four more drum more tracks, tracks and then bring those back onto here. Those right. And did that four times. Yeah. Sort of between that sort of first jam session that we heard of screwdriver and that time Blaine had made, pretty concise demos of everything sort of off the back of the writing and then also the pre-production mm -hmm. you'd sort of edit the demos so the demos were always in line with what the band was doing in pre-production is that right that yeah right, no that's it? right and because we use this is kind of for the geeks maybe but because we use logic it's really easy to fly across elements from the demos you know vsts and loops and so when we actually start building the band session it actually resembles the demo and we start just building on top of those yeah elements. so we start with yeah the demo elements and then say we recorded the drums and comp them and they're right then we mute and hide the demo drums right and then same with the guitars and then some things as uh, you've definitely heard from 
other people on the podcast is some of them are like you can't ever recreate that demo mm. thing so that stays i think there's definitely something the first time this doesn't apply to everything but but sometimes the first time you you know you record something you'll never match that intent or that kind that of moment that moment again mm. um because so, you just it's almost the throwaway nature that you do yeah. some things in a demo the moment you start trying to overthink those things and how can i make that better you can get lost like that little guitar harmonic you heard earlier i just you know i don't think we could have we could have recreated the magic of that guitar <laughs> harmonic if we tried to <laughs> we would have tried so um let's are we able to hear some of those yeah. demos then as they progress uh, so i think we've just got the sort of final demo yeah so this would have been what we we, we brought in here and we started to replace and we started to track, track to. yeah able to hear there there was actually a thunderstorm playing in the background oh, right, that was <laughs> yeah. a real thunderstorm yeah amazing and that's a classic example of what we we're just talking about about the demo we spent i think me and you spent maybe two days trying to redo that the thunderstorm <laughs> maybe a day in total trying to get a synthesizer to sound like a thunderstorm and that and in the end we couldn't do it well in right. verse <laughs> in verse one it's a thunderstorm in verse two it's wind it's it's a hurricane, a hurricane an almighty yeah. hurricane and actually the hurricane made it into the final version yeah but it's like white noise on a synthesizer is going and is that just because <laughs> that's happening where you were recording or or no, no i think we just felt it'd be too on the nose just using like a you know like a sound bank yeah yeah sample of something but you wanted that idea, so the, the idea is that you wanted to have a, a kind of thunderstorm. Wanted to emote, you yeah, know, emote right. that feeling, yeah. but it did feel a little heavy-handed in the end. Yeah. So the thunderstorm, which we tried to replicate with like spring reverb, I, I mean, tried so I was hitting a spring reverb for about an hour, like trying to get the perfect thunderstorm, <laughs> and and then we had white noise on the synth for the wind, and I think the wind made it in, didn't so it? So this is the hurricane bit coming up. Oh, so you've got. A, I forgot you had an actual. There's an actual hurricane. Sort of, where did you get that cartoon from? hurricane? I think it's just one of those kind of free sound loops, right? Um, so where are you um, recording these demos then, Blake? What's the setup? It's a, so it's using Logic, exactly. As well, yeah. But wherever you happen to be living, pretty much, pretty much, yeah. I spent some time in Iceland writing this record. It was interesting because in the past, particularly making Curve, I'd always found that I needed to get as far away as possible from, you know, kind of London commitments and London life and all the other parts of being in a band, you know. So isolating myself had always proven to be really effective to just get on with writing and I'd, and I'd come back with a bunch of songs. So for this record, I thought, well, I'd done a beach hut by 
the sea. I'd spent some time on a on a boat more than a really remote part of the Thames. I thought, how can I get even further? So I thought, why don't I go to Iceland <laughs> and and hire a car or hire a camper van? And there's basically one road that goes around the, the circumference of Iceland. So you can't really get lost. So I just thought, well, I'll just circumnavigate Iceland and take a month to do it and write as I go. So quite a few of the songs, the music anyway, the musical ideas kind of happened out there. Didn't you also have a spa with Bjork? That is a true story. <laughs> that did happen. So on New, it was New Year's Day. Myself and my girlfriend at the time had had quite a big night out on the tiles. I mean, Reykjavik's like a big drink, drinking town. Yeah. And on New Year's Day, it's kind of customary tradition that everyone goes to these hot springs. So we went to one of the smaller ones in Reykjavik because the big ones, are, they're pretty touristy. So we, we picked this smaller one kind of the, the on the edge of one. town. The indie one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And there I was in the dark. I mean, this was probably only about three in the afternoon, but it was pitch dark and it started raining and I could just feel my sins sort of slowly washing away. <laughs> and I think I did have a little cry. I was feeling quite emotional because <laughs> my, my girlfriend was leave. I think she'd actually just left that morning. So I was like, okay, I'm out here for a month. Everything's really expensive. I mean, Iceland is notoriously expensive. And I think I was just feeling a little bit lost in that moment. And I turned to my right and there was Bjork just kind of lying in the bubbles next to me, just having a really lovely time. And um, <laughs> and I, I didn't disturb her, I didn't say anything, but it felt a bit like going to, you know, going to like Narnia and meeting Aslan, if you know what I mean. It's <laughs> kind of, <laughs> I think it is literally that. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. So that's my Iceland story. Yeah, that's nice. And then so after that, you got in the camper van and started... So the camper van didn't really the... work out. This is part right. of the problem. So I ended up... Being, I had a couple of friends out there who offered me um, places to stay. And I ended up in this fishing village right up in the kind of northeast fjords and ended up really liking it there. So I got a little room in a, in a cheap hotel and I ended up kind of making a little studio set up in there. So it was literally just a laptop, an interface, and I had a kind of a travel guitar. And about five or six of the songs that ended up on the record, the music came from there. Not the lyrics, but the music. Mm. So that's the kind of home demo setup that you create wherever you go, it seems. Yeah. Um, and then you create, so you, whatever ideas are going around in the band on whatever you're working on, you can kind of collate them all together and, and put them together and then bring them back to exactly. carry on working. Exactly. And quite often what I'll do is I'll ring caps and I'll, he's got a little kind of drum room set up in his garage. So I'll, I'll quite often call him up and I say, I really need this beat. And I might have programmed something on my computer and I'll send it to him and I'll say, can you interpret this and just record it on your phone? Or he's got like a little, like one of those little Zoom stereo recorders. So he'll often record himself on that. And then he'll just ping me over the file and I'll chop it up, stretch it a bit. And that will be something that I'll write over. And I always, because I always find it much more engaging to write over something that has actually been played by someone rather than just like a, a programmed beat. Mm. Amazing. So much detail involved in the evolution mm. of this song. There is one more slightly uh, interesting thing, um, the marching. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so when we were recording the drums with Caps, I think we wanted to give him... I suppose bring him into the world of what the song was about. for the song well. to play to, because he, he wasn't... What we generally did was he'd do a couple of takes with... Blaine on guitar and Jack on bass and then we'd pull them out and he'd just play to that but we just wanted to create more of an atmosphere and 
So we recorded the sounds of us marching because the song's got this sort of lolloping kind of, you know, and, and tying in with the sort of protest theme of the yeah. record, it felt like it's actually quite, it's quite scary. It is quite scary. <laughs> so how many people are marching? I, I think can't. it's all of us. It's and I think it's like quadruple tracks. Stamping up and right. down. I mean, Somewhere yeah. in, in this building? In no, this is a buff. Right, right. And it had this sort of really quite reflective tile floor and we just stamped on it, tracked it a few times and then looped it. Um, and poor Caps to play sort of... It's also given this sort of regimented but kind of caveman, like military, like... Yeah, pulse. Feel, pulse, yeah. yeah. and Because uh, it okay. can get so... I can. Ima I, I would imagine that as a drummer it can get so tedious just hearing beep. Oh yeah, so it was to replace the click. So it was a click. It was yeah, essentially it was a click. It was a, it was a kind of really demonic click and track. Because it's you know parts of it are aggressive. We wanted to sort of create that environment, but we didn't leave it in the track. Because right, okay, but we can hear the marching that in, in, helped inspire. Yeah, we, caps. We, well, yeah. I, he would have to tell you whether it inspired him. <laughs> so you were kind of. Chanting as well. We're chanting and <laughs> there, if there out. is feet stomping, they're really small feet. They're really tiny little <laughs> centipede feet. <laughs> wow, this is amazing. So you did all this. Yeah. Then he drummed along to that. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And then you took that original we caveman that out, yeah. marching well, thing out of it completely. Sounds like an out of breath dog. <laughs> I remember it being a lot scarier than that. So let's hear what Caps came up with then to the sound of that. How about we just start with the drums and then I'll bring in the other elements of the track in the chorus. Yeah, sounds good. So you can hear a sample behind the snare as well. I'm not sure if we put that in. Yeah, um, we put that in. We did. Okay. Yeah. So that would be a bass, a clean bass, DI along with a bass for a fuzz pedal mixed together. Right. I think it was a plasma pedal, which is a, a pedal by... It's, a, it's this kind of boutique Swedish company um, who make a pedal with this literally a plasma beam running through the middle of it. It's a really amazing pedal. I think that's myself and Will playing together, both playing the riff. Surely it must be so tempting to just stay on that riff for 10 minutes. <laughs> and then there's a string part as well in the background. So this is like a loop that came from the original demo. Um, maybe it's worth isolating that actually, if that's possible. It's a kind of combination of a kind of arpeggiated guitar figure all around this chord with some Mellotron notes as well playing. That's actually how the song starts, but it comes back in as a sort of theme in different yeah. sections of the song. Yeah, I mean, that ends up being a kind of key sound because you use yeah. it right at the start of the song. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Something, one of the things we set out to do on this record was none of the guitars were recorded through guitar amps we did them all sort of through effects pedals and then just di'd straight in because we especially in the sort of big rock numbers mm. we just wanted the guitars like right 
smashing your against your no air, like ah, yeah. And then a lot of the synths were then reamped, so sort of kind of the opposite way you would do it standardly. Mm. So the sort of synths are sort of a bit more ambient and filling out the dimension, and then the guitars are just right slamming your face, which is very different to how I think we've treated particularly guitars in the past we've always sought like nice analog warm guitar tones vintage amps all these kinds of things but we said no let's let's just have the guitars literally so there's nowhere they're just plugged into the back of the computer essentially and they're smashing right up against your eardrums yeah and i I think we also just didn't want to spend maybe subconsciously i don't know if we ever had this conversation but we just didn't want to spend hours and hours getting the right like mics well to be fair what we did do at the end of the entire recording of the record, we did a week of just reamping, so we did get. That was fun for you, wasn't it? It was quite fun actually, but we we got all our old, you know, Marshalls and Fender amps and Selmers, and we just lined them all up in a in a formation in that wall and kind of grabbed every mic we had in the studio and we put a different mic in front of every cab and we sort of created all these different configurations. And so for every guitar on the record, we try sending them out to amps. Um, and then A-B it against the And then the A-B DI. them against the DIs. But Most of the time it was like DI. DI right. won 90% of the time. Yeah, but a lot of keys went through, as you'll hear in later tracks, we hired a Leslie speaker, like an organ rotary speaker, mm. and fed all the every single piano through that which is an old pink wobbly, Floyd trick that's what they used to do kind of wobbly watery piano sound yeah. which was just you'd done that in the demos what we did try to do on this record is like have sounds that when they appeared in tracks they were the same as in the other tracks sort of tie it all in so things like the leslie piano was pretty much always through a leslie and we kind of used one or two synth patches for certain jobs throughout, throughout the, the record. record right to tie it all in together and probably also to save us going mad. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, at this stage now, I mean, screwdriver sounds pretty much sorted. Yeah. And yeah. so it's just the vocals to go just the on, vocals on, on top. Oh. Which we went for quite a... The vocal sound changes quite a lot in the choruses. What it actually is, is you can see just behind where... Well, the, obviously your listeners can't, but John, you can. We've got a vocal booth here. So I would do the vocals in there and then we'd put a microphone out in the corridor which has got a concrete floor. And then so, we've really, like, really compressed it. Really compressed the, the corridor, corridor mic. mic. So it's had a load of bite, but a lo- sort of ambience. And then that sort of... That, that became the vocal in sound the in the choruses. Yeah. Right. And then the close mic in the, in the verses. I'd, I never dreamed that it would come to this But an enemy is only what you fight them with Fight them with so you can hear the corridor mic coming in on that section. Fight them with love. Cause when the power so good to hear those vocals isolated, but I think we should feel the full power of the song, having seen all the little elements that have gone into it. So is that the, still the Pro One? There? That is, that yeah. synth sound is, yeah. So that's interesting, isn't it? Because you know, so long ago we heard the Pro One and Jack just fiddling around responding yeah. to your, there you go. your voice oh. note.
So I think one thing worth mentioning is with Screwdriver we did, we actually ended up doing two mixes of the track. So Rich Cooper, who mixed, he's actually worked on four Mystery Jets records. He engineered Serotonin and Radlands. He mixed Curve the Earth and then he mixed most of the tracks on this album. So he, he did a pass of Screwdriver and then also we had a pass done by Alan Mulder, who's obviously a recording legend and mixing legend. I think we went to him because he's just so associated with that really heavy kind of like Smashing Pumpkins 90s rock sound, which I think Screwdriver felt that was very much part of the DNA of where the song came from. So, the, and it was the Mulder mix that made the record? It is, yeah. yeah. And that's the point where we all put up, punch our fists into the air. Fantastic. And um, I mean, it, 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 it's another conversation, but uh, part of the inspiration behind the whole album is yeah. you, uh, Blaine, and your um, domicile proximity to Trafalgar Square at one particular point and where you would see every weekend almost a, a different march for a different cause exactly. going on. And yeah. this kind of really fed into the songwriting for this record and that's why particularly with you know S screwdriver that's a kind of discussion of that in a way and about people marching and what are they fighting for and you know how do we respond to that and we fight them with love okay yeah. yeah love yeah which is powerful which i think is a message which is carried on throughout the record as well you know i think there is definitely a thread of i suppose activism and protest culture that that really glues a lot of the songs together and i think the commonality in all those is that you know politics seeks to divide us music unites us so love and togetherness is you know it sounds very hippie but that is really i think what our music is serving to do is to unite people yeah no and uh, let's let's really hope that it does no i'm sorry <laughs> and in Come contrast on. to screwdriver though we're gonna listen to wrong side of the tracks and how that came about You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. 
It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favor. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So this is, this is a ballad. No, <laughs> Screwdriver was rocking out and getting people to uh, march in a way, uh, yeah. you could say. Um, wrong side of the tracks, though. Now, how did this come about? I mean, I'm assuming a more traditional way of creating a song. Yeah, I think it's it's still a protest song of sorts. I wanted to write a lyric that engaged with gun culture, you know, which isn't so much part of uh, living in this country, but definitely having spent quite a lot of time touring in America over previous records, I think like I wanted to engage in that conversation about weapons. And there was actually a song, it'd be wrong not to mention this, there was a song that a song called Oxygen by someone called Willie Mason that came out a long, long time ago. About Big tune. About 10. <laughs> Anthem of a generation. Blank. It really was. It really was. And it was, it was a record that I think probably like a lot of people that heard it, it really took my breath away. And it was so quiet. It was just him and basically one guitar string. And it felt like such an anthem of its time. And it had this real quality of innocence about it. And I thought I wanted to write something that had that feeling about it. And rather than going towards the guitar, which is where I normally write, I sat down at the piano, which my dad's got a piano where he lives, and I sat down there. It is a white grand piano, so there's always a danger when you sit down on it then whatever's going to come out sort of sounds Lennon-esque. But in the case of this song, I don't think it does. But I don't know if we're able to go back to the original demo, but it does. Actually, no, I'm going to go even further back than that. Before I sat down at the piano, I had the chords, but I had come up with them with a synth and I'd looped them around on my loop pedal. I've got like a Boss, I think it's called an RC300 loop pedal. And that's me kind of working out the chord sequence and trying to figure out what the song should be. Yeah, so we have that and we also have you working out the pre-chorus on an acoustic guitar. So I can play one and then the other. Or mm. just, which, which came first? Uh, it was the loop, pedal. the loop pedal. Yeah, let's have a listen to that. I always felt like it, it sounded like something that should be on the Drive soundtrack or something like that. Yes, yeah. It's I got this kind of that. like Italo vibe to it. So that was, those were the chords of the song um, and I didn't have a top line yet. So I think what we can probably listen to next is when I tried to work out a vocal melody to go over it. I'm not sure if the lyrics had appeared at this point. This is a different section of the song though. This so became the, the pre-chorus. That was the verse. That was the verse. And then this is 
you working out the pre-chorus on acoustic guitar. I think you can start to hear the song forming there, but it could have gone in a very different direction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's much more of a kind of like campfire vibe to it. Yeah. As it could have done with the piano version as well. The first thing I heard after you'd been around those houses is the piano demo. And it seemed to be about making it really beautiful and kind of kick off at the end, but we never wanted it to turn into like... November rain, yeah. <laughs> which it could easily have done. And some people, not necessarily within, inside the band, were disappointed it didn't. But I think, <laughs> I mean, I personally felt really strongly that it would lose all its integrity. I integrity and, and it's just not what any of us would do musically mm. with anything. And so we did, we went around the houses. And so the, the end part where the drums come in, there's um, Caps came up with this really kind of cool almost like sort of afrobeat kind of thing that did all those things it kind of the end becomes this sort of joyful thing but it never sort of you know big right big crashy ride cymbal and yeah playing on a cliff it never top. rocks out it, yeah, yeah it, it, it never rocks rock out. out it's always controlled and then it was it's about sort of trying to create atmosphere and propulsion without like before those drums come in without you know going to a Perhaps what we could illustrate like is, is how it starts on the piano and on yeah. the original demo. On your demo. And then how we replace that with the synth. Yeah. So did you you recorded the piano when you were there? Yes. And then did you record these vocals afterwards? When you, I think I would have just yeah yeah they wouldn't have been done live on the demo, yeah. but in that sort of sitting. But I think I felt that the piano, although it created a certain mood, it felt like it could quite easily fall victim to being. There's just something about when you hear that piano it immediately, as Matt said, like you're kind of like November Rain, like power ballad associations start coming in and we wanted to avoid those. And I think we wanted to avoid sort of retroism within it. So any sort of opportunity we could, I think especially in this track, because of the type of song it was, it was how can we do that thing, it. but in a sort of more contemporary way. So obviously the arpeggio sort of nature of the tune is beautiful, but how can we do that without it sort of sounding like it's from the 70s, basically? Mm. So... So what we did is we we took the arpeggio figure that the piano's playing and we turned it into a MIDI track and we sent it out to actually this keyboard that's just behind me, which is a keyboard called an OB6. And there's one particular patch on these keyboards. It's actually patch 007. It's a factory patch. So if anyone's got one, 
if you go to that sound now and make um, the karaoke <laughs> versions of a billion heartbeats but that patch that particular patch on the keyboard is on about nine songs out of ten on the record so it's served us well <laughs> we did use a couple of others in different places but there was something about that sound that ended up becoming a kind of character within mm. within the narrative of the record and so now we can hear what that piano figure is like played on the synth yeah and we've also when we were at buff doing the drums for this i mean i can't remember if we were like let's get just the piano sort of bass notes that's right down just as a guide and you know we've got a piano sound if we later want it and it just stuck it's just you did one so, take to the click exactly so essentially what it is is that the left hand has has stayed as a piano part but the right hand's ended up becoming the synth very clever so i'll play a bit of the synth and then i'll add in the piano almost like a split screen thing so yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. on the left we have the piano and one now hand, and then and then <laughs> on the right excellent the ob6 And then this is the piano joining it on the left hand. There's an additional layer which we ended up using um, from the demo which we flew in, which is a pad that I recorded, I think on a different synth, it might have been a Juno and you can hear that coming in here. Which is one of the things that we felt we couldn't replace. We had to keep that as a sort of Easter egg from where the song originally came from. Yeah. So that OB6 sort of underpins the whole song basically filtering in and out and opening and closing opening closing and, to accent um, different release sections. more release less release yeah yeah because the song does build you know yeah. it's about two minutes and then it, yeah. it starts to build slowly yeah so moving on sort of to, uh, in the atmosphere sort of atmospheric department as we're talking about if we go into sort of verse two pre-chorus two it's sort of just ob6 and piano and vocal mm -hmm. up to that point and then we start sort of laying it on thick with the mm. other things yeah so there's a collection of different guitars that Will played that we sort of turned into a pad, which we called the Eno pad. <laughs> uh, maybe he would disagree. But um, yeah, because it's just sort of this twinkly atmospheric thing. Mm. Which I think it, Will and Jack did together. They yeah. did it on a day that we weren't actually here. But what they did is they just recorded multiple tracks of just playing kind of single note parts on the guitar and then reversed them. And pitched know. a couple of them. And I pitched think a couple of them. It's either pitched at the pedal part of the chain or done in logic, I don't know. Mm. Um, but I'll just solo those out mm. and yeah, then do. hear them all together. So yeah, this is... I'll just open the layers up. Sounds a bit like a bunch of, almost like an orchestra tuning up loads of tiny little mm. French horns. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, listening to the album, I find myself asking, what is that instrument? Now, is that a guitar? Is that a keyboard? Yeah. Constantly with yeah. the record. So it's really interesting hearing it broken down in this way. And that's something that we bring in under the second verse because there hadn't been an idea there. I'd sort of intentionally wanted to create a space where Will could bring something in. And I don't know, are we able to listen to that coming in and fading up into the second verse? Yeah. There's a world outside your window What you running from Heretics are pressing by So that's it coming in there Never forget we're not like the other ones All we ever wanted was to make the needle jump Tonight no one can stop them And just in terms of what we're talking about In terms of propulsion and we didn't really want a drum kit to come in there at that point. And also not want the drums at the end to come completely out of left field in terms of what you may have heard in the track already. So I took a loop of the drums at the end and then I think pitched them up and added some modulation and stuff and create a sort of glitchy loop that appears in that second verse. Um, yeah, that it helps the track build up. Yeah, and it, it sort of creates a sort of rolling thing yeah. along with the toms. Yeah. Um, just so the it. movement you want is being created, but not in a conventional way. Exactly. Because clearly you, you're trying to resist this whole power ballad cliche. Um, yeah. It just feels, it can feel too easy. Yeah, I think that's the best way of putting it. It feels too easy. Like, it can feel what, like a trope. What, how else could we explore this and how can we push ourselves to sort of do these things and create that power, but yeah. in different ways? Maybe we're just being too difficult. Maybe it'd be a well, well, million well, dollar I mean, smash I'm, by I'm, now if we. <laughs> I do wonder whether some people would be thinking, well, you know, they they seem to make things hard for themselves by you know creating all these extra <laughs> challenges. No, but at the same time, uh, the results I think end up speaking for themselves too. So I think it's also about creating. You know, a lot of things come around by happy mistakes and sort of experimenting. And if you can follow it on to that point where it becomes something really good, I mean, that's exciting as opposed to going right. We've only got ten minutes, so just stick an SM57 in front of that guitar amp, cool, done, right, next. I think these last two records we've made, in terms, for me anyway, I haven't walked away from either of them going, wish we'd, uh, wish we'd done Gone that. a bit further down that rabbit yeah, hole. Yeah, I don't feel like we <laughs> <laughs> And I'm also, I think I'm also a believer in, you know, first idea is often not necessarily the right idea, but the kind of purest idea. Mm. This, that first sort of initial burst of inspiration is so often the thing you go back to. And I think that's that's particularly true with with demos. Yeah, yeah, but it's working out whether that is the right thing or you or demoitis. Sure, I'm sure demoitis has come up on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what do you you're so someone so attached to, to a yeah. demo that they just go, I don't like the new. But you you spent two months on the new mm. mode, and you're like, yeah, but it's and you know it's actually just perspective. It's completely yeah. subjective, isn't it? Mm. But it's about sort of balancing those things. Yeah. Yeah. There was another interesting thing that happened in the song where we we decided that we didn't want any cymbal crashes. I think it was part of this, I suppose, this kind of aversion of going down the kind of... I, th I think John's right. I think we're making our lives too hard for us. <laughs> <laughs> but we decided that rather than have some big sort of like dynamic cymbal crashes, that we how could we create that feeling or that an impression of a cymbal crash, but in, an, in another way, using more processed sounds. And Matt... Kind yeah, of stitched I, a few things together. I took a bit of the vocal where Blaine goes, uh, sings back, mm -hmm. and I duplicated it twice, pitched one an octave up, one an octave down, and put a bunch of delay and reverb on it. And so it just goes, 
uh, sort of on, you know, on the downbeat. At, where there at, would be a crash. Where there would yeah. be a crash. And it's just this kind of big washy, but also that kind of contemporary pop pitched up vocal thing just tucked in there as sort of like some are quite tight some are quite loud some are quite loud there's one right <laughs> the very last thing you hear in the song is just one is on its own but yeah just that sort of bit of contemporary production tucked in there just so it sort of you know doesn't feel retro yeah we've got to hear that now <laughs> the the quack yeah definitely so yeah i'll just quickly show you what it is i think it's just the end of the chorus i think just to that so it's the last word of the chorus yeah there's a low one and then a, an octave up as well and then put a load of delay <laughs> delay and verb well it's just there just tucked in and it's the last sound you hear and in the, it's the, the, song the last well. sound you hear on the record so it's, right. <laughs> on the record so it's, it's the final reveal so yeah you, I think every Amazing. time after you know it's a journey but you know there's some quite intense stuff on the record and the very last thing you hear makes you go oh. <laughs> <laughs> so well we, we need to hear the full impact of wrong side of the tracks I think So those drums are the kind of Afro BT ones. That yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah, you can hear that. And another thing that happens is you can hear Will's guitar solo coming in. And what we actually do here is the whole song, I think, goes up one dB or one and a half dB. So literally the whole track gets a lot louder. Imagining now that um, there'll be a more straightforward covers band who'll do a more power ballad version of this. A wedding, a wedding yeah. band. That I would think be so it's cool. one of those songs that you know, like Boys of Summer or something. Yeah. That, like an enormous trance version will come out and be big <laughs> in the Balearics in Here's like fifteen years. Here's the sound. It's just coming up. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing <laughs> to think that is actually. Blaine's yeah. vocal. Yeah. That's how he sounds first take. <laughs> after, <laughs> before he's warmed up. I must say it's a lovely a lovely vocal on that particular track. No, it's Thank a, you. Really, yeah. Really sounds great. We're gonna to listen to another song in just a moment from A Billion Heartbeats. It's gonna be the title track of that song. But just in case there is a slight difference in the terms of the the sound quality, we're actually gonna have a little break right now and reconvene um, for the last part of this tape notes. Why does it take a tragedy to make our true colours come out? 
is the master version of A Billion Heartbeats by Mystery Jets and we are back once more in the studio that that was recorded in with Matt and Blaine and we originally were going to take a little break because Blaine you were caught up in a photo shoot Mm. uh, for Dr Martins um, which looked fantastic the pictures were amazing that I saw afterwards Um, but then an unexpected event occurred after the photo shoot yeah that's right i mean as you said we thought we'd be breaking for half an hour or so so i could pop upstairs and do these photos but um the photos took a bit longer than expected and it ended up here we are five months later (laughs) finishing the podcast which is which wasn't planned but i think it's one of those things and um it hasn't been a holiday shortly after we recorded the first section of the podcast i had to have some emergency surgery i had to have a leg operation and and subsequently we we moved both the album and the tour back several months and here we are in in february 2020 we've left the eu uh we've got a new prime minister and but on a happier note, our album's coming out next month, which is very exciting. It, it is kind of, <laughs> it's kind of mad thinking about it because originally, um, by the time this podcast would have come out, the album would have been out. Yeah. I think now it's still about to come out, mm-hmm. and yes, things in the UK have changed quite a lot. Yeah. You could say that some of the topics discussed in the songs on the new record are even more relevant. You know, Absolutely. that's good news <laughs> for Mystery <laughs> Jets. It's the, not for anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> the work has even greater resonance, yeah, yeah. No, which is exciting. Um, so we just heard a, a little snippet, really, of A Billion Heartbeats, which is quite an epic journey of a song in some yeah. ways, particularly the ending and the way it builds up, which we will discover. How did it all start? It appeared about halfway through the songwriting process, and as you said, it did It did take a bit of a journey, this song. The initial seed for the music was inspired by the Grenfell tragedy. So that was in June 2017. We were rehearsing the morning after the fire. And, you know, I think someone looked at Twitter and we read all about the tragedy. And that afternoon when we finished rehearsal, my girlfriend at the time and I went down to to see if we could help and we, we brought some food, we brought some sanitary products, uh, some clothes. We both brought a bag of clothes. And when we arrived there at the, it was the Tabernacle Church, which is at the, not far from, from the base of the, of the tower, there was just this incredible coming together of resilience, both from the communities from around Latimer Road, around where the where the tower stood, but also from people who travelled from all over the southeast and all over London to just see if they could be of any help at all. And we were there kind of late into the night and the donations just kept on coming. It was quite incredible. And um, there was no one sort of managing it. Everyone was just slotting into this kind of supply chain of help. And it was this incredible operation, almost like a military operation, that 
really had a profound impact, I think, on on everyone there. And I left with this feeling of, isn't it funny how sometimes it takes the worst human losses of life, the worst atrocities to actually bring out our humanity? And the song was born from that idea. And um, I've got it written down that it was the 14th of June was the fire and the 11th of July is the first demo that I had of the song. Um, and it, the seeds of the song came together quite quickly. Mm. Yeah, amazing. So um, did you start making notes immediately or do these uh, thoughts come out once you pick up an instrument? Or? The feeling was there straight away. And I think a, a song more often than not, whether it's a lyric or whether it's a, a musical idea, it, it comes from a strong feeling. I think the good ones do. Digging around in the dirt can also produce interesting things as well. But I think with this song, it came from this very direct experience of human resilience and this kind of coming together in the face of something terrible. And the the first thing that appeared was was the chords, which became the verse. And I was kind of crafting away on them. And one day Matt came in and he was reading a book at the time, which had a lyric in well, it had a passage in it which ended up giving us the chorus lyric. Oh, is that my cue? <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, I was reading really? Sapiens. I think it was in Sapiens. It was. Yeah. And yeah, there's a line that basically the average, every human on average has a billion heartbeats in their lifetime. <laughs> I just thought that, that there's an actual number which I found quite terrifying, actually. But yeah, I just, um, I came in and sort of, I just told you, like, oh, did you know this? And then Blaine being Blaine, you know, squirreled away and <laughs> turned it into a, a well, much better, much better thing than I the context I've been thinking of. Well, I'm quite an avid note taker. So I think like lots of people, I used to carry around a book and now it's turned into notes on my phone. And it's just this notes page on my phone that I'm constantly adding things to, things that I've overheard in conversations. We have a little sign for it in the studio. If someone says something that they think is going to be a good lyric, everyone makes a scribe. It's like a little shroud. Right. Blaine goes, yeah, which are, <laughs> which is a shroud of scribbling in a little book, yeah, popping in, a in your book. top pocket. Obviously, because you don't have the book anymore, it has to be yeah a charade, a charade, and then you get your phone out. At the time, I didn't know what the significance of that passage would be, that line would be, but um, it was probably that week or the week after I went back to this music that I'd written, and um, I started looking through my notes, and it they just felt so inherently linked to each other. Um, it said something a, very close to what, what the sentiment of the song felt like. Mm. And so I'm interested in this idea that you had a, had a feeling and that the feeling led into the song. Whether you're aware that that feeling that you have is a feeling that you will be able to somehow attempt to articulate. Mm. Do, do you know what I mean? Because mm. obviously we all have feelings, we all have mm. different um, uh, moods that that we get into. But yeah. being able to channel something like that into a work of art mm. is a, is an interesting thing. And whether you, you're conscious of it at the time that, oh, wow, I can feel this emotion that this has created is going to lead to something. you know, And then yeah. whether that then has a knock-on effect and you think, oh, I've got to channel that, I've got to capture that somehow. Yeah, I think it's... For me, it's 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 rarely in the midst of that feeling um, or in the midst of the event that inspires the feeling that creativity 
knocks on the door it's often in the wake of it because it's when when a feeling stays with you and it's persistent that's when i think i feel drawn to the guitar or to the keyboard and that feeling didn't go away you know it, it just didn't it was it had a very profound effect on me and i think although i wouldn't describe billion heartbeats as a protest song in the way that some of the other songs on the album are it is about coming together it is about the power of you know what we're capable of achieving as a group communing for a greater cause mm. yeah and it has it works well as a title for the record doesn't it because it's it can be about the sort of finite nature of a, a human being but also a collection of hearts beating at the same time mm. in a you know position of protest or something like that like yeah. a, a square full of people that's it whatever yeah, it kind of works in different ways, doesn't it? You know, That's like there it. are billions of people on the planet, all with a billion heartbeats, mm, yeah. um, all beating together as we speak. That's it. And, you know, we're bigger than the sum of our parts. And mm. I think that's really so true if you do attend a protest if we, or if you go on a march, there is something, you know, there, there is just a feeling that is shared by everyone there that's very powerful. Mm. So you had the phrase and you had a feeling mm. that you wanted to channel how did you capture or combine these things? I suppose it was a melody. There was a melody which appeared quite early on, which would be the verse melody, which we could take a little listen to. Three, four. What does it take? A tragedy to make different aren't they so it, how was this one recorded is this um so that is literally a voice note that would be me um in my in my little box room with a guitar um because i think the feeling that i had it wasn't an angry feeling but it felt like there was a great lack of justice in the way that that tragedy was being dealt with both in the media but also politically. Mm. And I can hear some of that angst coming through in the guitar. And obviously the lyric, the, the principal lyric, lyrical direction is is present in that recording as well. Yeah. And so um, what did you do next? Then you shared that with Matt or you... No, no. I, I didn't hear it till you'd made a full demo of it, which would have been September... Yeah, that year. But uh, before you heard it, it went for a couple of other geysers um, in its journey. And there's another voice note that we've got in which it appears as quite a strummed, slightly less angry version of the song. Grenfell late night sketch. Does it take a tragedy to make our true colours come out? We only feel life in 
So you, after doing the faster demo, you thought, oh, I need to slow this down to, to tap into the meaning more? The danger of doing demos late at night. <laughs> just super slow. slow. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this feels great in the candlelight. But it's interesting you, you title it as Grenfell um, right at the start. The first demo yeah. was titled as Grenfell, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think I very soon recognised that I needed to step away. The song needed to step away from what inspired it, I think, mm. in a sense, because I've always felt it's more powerful for the listener to find their own to find the song's meaning in their own, in the context of their own experience. Mm. And um, obviously the title just would have been too on the nose. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, I'm just thinking voice notes are so key in the modern world, aren't they? And especially for tape notes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) These voice notes are key to our unravelling of all these these songs. Yeah, Yeah. and I think at the time you never really, it's a bit like writing in your journal or in your diary. It's not written to be read or it's not recorded to be listened to by someone, anyone other than yourself. It's it's purely there because perhaps you're on the move or you're, you know, you just have a sort of a moment of inspiration. You just want to get it down. But so often I go back to them and I, there's voice notes from records we've made seven, eight, nine years ago that I still, I still raid those voice notes. Right. Yeah. So those ideas can, can carry on. Yeah, absolutely. And it can be things, you know, something that first appears as a baseline can end up becoming a hook, something that appears as a vocal melody can end up becoming a string arrangement. And actually speaking of that, Matt and I had a listen to this a little bit earlier on and in verse two, the line history has its eyes on you appears. In the demo, in, in your sort of posh demo. Yeah. In a slightly more sophisticated version of, of that, there's a demo where, the, where that line appears, which ended up becoming another song on the album several months later yeah that's interesting are we, are we able to have a listen to that yeah i just have to dig out that section so this is a much more fleshed out yeah so this thing the sort of arrangement of the song is all there Made you decide to take that bit out then? I think it, it again. It came back to this thing of not being too on the nose with, particularly with lyrics. Um, there's something that Michael Stipe once once said, which is that the most powerful thing for the listener or for the writer is when you have a very strong feeling and you you get it down, but then you take a step back and actually you write it from that perspective. But you need to start off in that in that closer perspective and. Um, I always keep that in the back of my mind with lyrics. Mm. Yeah, a lot of the time we go to record vocals for some of the songs and you're like, oh, I've got to rewrite a line. You and your dad rewrite. Yeah, like, often. Right up to the, or often beyond. The often in the booth, just here, you know, there's several songs where... You're on the phone to your dad like, this line doesn't work, it's not right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've probably got recordings of yeah. phone conversations <laughs> down the vocal mic. Um, or often what I'll do is I'll sing a couple of alternative versions in a slightly non-committal way where where we'll decide to later sort of edit in the correct version. But I really, I like to walk into the booth with the intention of singing the, you know, the finished lyric because mm. I think 
I think it always gives for a more powerful performance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Presumably, you can center yourself more and and yeah, know that this is what I'm trying to yeah, do here. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I can see um, the notebook that you're holding that you're reading out from and w- when you go into the booth which is just behind you mm. do you you bring that that notebook do you type out the words because i find i struggle even in these interviews i struggle with the little notes that i make in my own handwriting i look down and i cannot read <laughs> yeah. uh, a word of them and i think oh lord you know and it, it's the idea that you no, know, in order to sing them you want to be able to see them well exactly you no know. what i actually do is i i bring in the lyrics and i also bring in a computer and I, I set up like a slideshow of images, which I have just on loop playing when I'm recording a vocal take. Um, and there'll be images related to what inspired the song or, you know, whales swimming around. No, I'm joking. Yeah, yeah. Just, but just something whale. that can evoke that emotion. Something that can evoke the feeling that the song came from because I think a lot of songwriters will probably relate to this. The first time a song appears, be it, first thing in the morning or or late at night if you're like me if i'm a night you know i'm a night owl you're never going to mean that song as much as that first time you play it it's the moment that that song feels most alive to you because it's coming so directly from the feeling and then the song goes on a journey whereby it gets taken to the band and other people have an input in it and it becomes something else and often that initial feeling can become blurred and it can become obscured by all the work that that goes into recording the song but when i get in the booth to record the vocal i need to i need to reconnect with what it was that inspired it and images really help with that mm. uh, but also it must mean that you to get the right images you've got to go through a process of working through what it all means you know? yeah which I mean, is quite a lot analytical of the time really. yeah exactly i mean a lot of the, a lot of the time they're just pictures of things i've taken on my phone you know for example this record it was mostly attending marches that drew me to the to the source of the lyric or the meaning behind the song so often i'd replay images from the marches and placards and banners and things like that Mm. yeah amazing um so the demo that we just heard was obviously much more fully realized Mm. and i presume that's gap drumming that's all that's that's still just me on my computer wow but it sounds it sounds sounds pretty similar doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty busy well i think we i think we covered you know five months ago the others the demos were pretty realized Mm. so this is the demo this is demo that i heard that blaine played me in september that's kind of the first i heard of it Uh, obviously some of the lyrics changed but um the arrangement was all there um but did we both feel, or did I feel? I think I felt that the last chorus didn't quite blow up in the way that he wanted it to. He wanted, you know, it to be a real rush and a, you know, a big moment. So we, I suggested we put a key change in, <laughs> uh, which we then worked out. I think on that we just sat down and did it straight away because yeah. I was like, it's brilliant, but it just needs the thing to elevate it at the end, so that because you've heard the chorus twice. Mm. And then you've got this big middle section where it, all this sort of confusion and sort of mild terror appears and then out of it bursts a final chorus. But it's the same chorus you've heard before. Whereas if, you know, we put it up a tone, something like that, that was the idea to sort of modulate the key of it. Yeah. And so I'd, always, we, I'd, I'd always avoided key changes like the plague because quite justifiably they have this connotation with... Backstreet Boys songs, or you know, or kind of. <laughs> that, that's where I, I, that was where I was coming from. <laughs> so up a tone like the Backstreet Boys would. 
<laughs> but they have. But they, you, you, you've unconsciously done them. They're all, quite all well, the time. I think they people write them without realizing all mm. the time. They do. They do. But we'd never consciously written a key change into a song. It always felt like quite a cynical, <laughs> you know, tool to pull out of the box. And I'd always, I'd always thought, God, that just sounds pants. <laughs> <laughs> but in this instance, you responded then, to Matt's suggestion and thought, that's a really he, good idea. Blame responded in the way he responds to all ideas. He went, mm, that's interesting. <laughs> well, I think I said, well... Yeah, you're like, show, prove sh- it. Show it. And so I said, I handed Matt the guitar and I... I think I went upstairs and had some lunch and I came back down <laughs> half an hour later and Matt, Matt had rewritten the song. <laughs> yeah. Matt's miming. No, so it, uh, it just the, what exploded. we did, what I did is it just in the middle <clears throat> section, how do I do I speak that bit? That originally just went round two chords. But what I did, the last time it changes to a relative chord and then changes. So the last two chords create the key change and then the final chorus is up a tone. And I think you work quite hard to make it seamless, seamless, yeah. and not seem like because there are ways of doing it by chucking in what George Harrison used to call a naughty chord, <laughs> and he always said you're allowed one naughty chord per song. <laughs> um, but I, I felt quite adamant I didn't want any naughty chords in this song, right? Because um, I felt it would it would create a distraction from the. Well, it's almost if you're too musical yeah. with a song like that, it, it does the white gloves the jazz hands pop up and it's like dilutes your message, doesn't it? If you're sort of, you know, it needs the energy and the rawness. Yeah. So are we able to hear yeah, so um, the, the way it was? So you, and we, then we've got the demo of, there's just a little sort of phone demo of us trying it out. And then there's also, you, you redid the demo. With the key with change. With the key change. Yeah. <laughs> but perhaps so we can hear resources. it before could, the key yeah, change. Yeah, could we hear before the yeah, key sure. change was okay. created? Could you go from the top of the, of that section? So yeah, that just continues on. Yeah, in yeah. The same so that key was the, that, the we heard the chaos bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and then uh, you're sort of you're still grounded in that same world of the first half mm. of the song. So yeah, I can then play the your redone demo with the key change in. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to hear us working it out on the on the guitar. Yeah, yeah, I think it would. <laughs> Let's not be afraid of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. I mean, it's great that you're sharing all this because um, these are the secrets that, in some ways, some people would want to cover over you know yeah. yeah some people feel that what it is is you know what is it is it oh it's abba isn't it abba don't for years refused to release any outtakes or anything because that's mm. it that's the body of work dream on you're hearing anything that isn't the completed thing whereas you know that's i love hearing yeah. like peeking behind the curtain yeah absolutely because mm. that's where we kind of exist we're sort of behind the curtain aren't we yeah <laughs> anyway no, I haven't worked out the lyrics at this point. So how do I sleep? Do I cry? I don't speak. How do I? I can't be. No, I try. I can't be. How do I? I think we're both playing guitar there, aren't we? <laughs> really in time as well <laughs> here it is oh, I try. My heart beats. Oh, I try. My 
And then. Whoa. <laughs> that was the key change. So we're, yeah. we're tone yeah. up. Hence why I'm struggling to sing it. <laughs> yeah, nice. It's, it's apparent, isn't it? Almost straight away that the key change does actually make a difference, even in, in that version. Mm. Yeah. We're in the jollier F sharp where we were in E. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, my, that's my feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What I then did is I then took the kind of more realized version of the demo and I integrated the key change into that to illustrate how it would feel. Perhaps it's worth hearing that. that. Yeah, the next step. I suspect the lyrics still aren't worked out at this stage. <laughs> I think around that time we started talking about the idea of having some brass on the record as mm. well, which, which again was something we'd never ventured into before, a, a musical land we'd never explored on previous records. We had strings on the last record, didn't we? That's right. So this one felt more like an angry brass record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, um, because they are, importantly, on this track, aren't they? They are. No. And so um, how did you go about sorting that all out? I think I put out something online. It might have been on Facebook, just saying we were looking for some brass players. And a friend of mine, Rory, uh, replied. He plays for Jamie Cullum. He plays for Jamie Cullum. He was also in the time in a in, in a play in the West End called Network, which had Brian Cranston in it. And I think through that he'd met some other brass players, and he put together a horn section who actually blurs horn section um, from when they tour. And they were just incredible. And I think, obviously, anyone who works, uh, you know, who uses something like Logic and, and soft synths and plugins, you know, it's, qu it's, it's quite easy to, to flesh out a brass arrangement or a string arrangement. And, but actually, when you have an ensemble playing back those parts live in a room, it's a whole other thing. It's quite incredible. And we liked it so much that we recorded them on four or five tracks on the record. So they actually have ended up having quite a presence throughout a the album. A starring role. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And did you record them in here? We recorded them on the other side of that wall, which is, which is our... Sort of little live room. Little live room. Mm. But we used... Because the, the corridors here are just big concrete, long stone, echoey niceness. So we, most of the sound is... We just set some mics up in the hall as well with the door open. So there's some close mics, but it's mainly just... This voluminous, reverby, concrete yeah. space, which is good for brass. Yeah. Yeah. Shall I play you a bit? Yeah, hey. please. I mean, they, they, is it me or do they sound almost overloaded? Yeah, that would have been in the mixing. Yeah. They've been saturated. Mm. It's, you can add a good, healthy amount of saturation to brass because yeah. they kind of sound like that anyway, right next to your ear. Yes, it's like, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah they, they deal well. With, give, give them a bit of crunch and they sort of crackle in the mix a bit more. Yeah. Well, it, make, yeah. it makes it really in your face. Yeah. So it, and it, they, they kind of... I mean, that's the intriguing thing for, for me about A Billion Heartbeats is the way it starts and the way it ends up, you know, in this build yeah. um is quite extreme really yeah because I, I felt like i did want them to 
feels slightly victorious at the end. You know, this the connotation of being almost like a marching band. Um, not that they're playing in the way that a marching band would play, but but just the feeling of brass. It has um, a sort of triumphant military kind of context. Not that we're going for the military thing, but you know, yeah. like you know, in the context yeah, yeah. of a march, it has a it has a place in that world. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But the corridor featured on the backing vocals in the middle in the middle section of the song as well. And originally, I was it was just myself singing it, but then I felt quite strongly that I wanted. Will and Jack, I think Matt as well. I wanted their voices to be present as well in that section of the song. I don't, I don't think I'm. I think you are. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so we sent them out into the corridor and again just used the ambient mics and the claps as well, right? And the claps. You can hear a lot of Jack in there. Yeah. And then here you have the claps. But the claps were inspired by Locked Out of Heaven, the Bruno Mars track, right? Um, which Paul Epworth um, recorded. And that was a couple of years before, but that was a track which we all really loved. But there was just something about this kind of these stomping hands, which again fitted into this, into the world of protest mm. that we wanted to, to yeah. illustrate with the song. Yeah. There's quite another another interesting feature in the song worth mentioning, which is that during the making of the album, Matt had a child. No, it was just after Curve came out. Was it just? A, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I but had, in the process between the previous record, yeah. Curve of the Earth that we made, and, and this album, Matt had Aubrey, his son, and um, he came into the studio one day and he had a recording from the from the heart rate monitor taken through uh, the belly. And I think we we kind of <laughs> joked that we'd have a competition to see who could be the first Just person to, to it. use it in a track. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, it's the classic the musician who has a kid, like all their noises turn up. I've got like three tracks with hiccups in somewhere <laughs> on my hard drive and like gurgles, like, oh yeah, make a track out of it. But yeah, th we did actually put it in this track. But we recorded it in and I think it just... Obviously, given the title yeah. of the song, it just felt so appropriate to so have. So Aubrey's heartbeat from the womb. For, yeah, in, in utero, yeah. I'm sure there will be some um, mothers listening that recognise that sound. Yeah, that's um, really interesting hearing that. Also completely out of context, because normally if you are privileged enough to hear that, you're in a hospital and... You've got a certain level of expectation and terror. Uh, terror. <laughs> <laughs> we added in yeah, a Moog like arpeggiator underneath it, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> You're not tempted to turn that into a complete techno track, then, Matt. It would be. Yeah, I booming. mean, maybe one day I'm still, yeah, not quite ready to re-enter the world. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll let Aubrey do that. Yeah, yeah he yeah, can do yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, how cool. Yeah, they'll just be remixing with their minds by that point, won't they? In like 18 years. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a, a, a subtle effect that you, I think, probably pleases you yeah. a lot. The idea that, you know, within a billion heartbeats are, you know, actual heartbeats, yeah, but yeah. also a baby's heartbeat. Yeah. That's it. And uh, that baby's heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. I've always liked, um, I think, you know, for as long as we've made records, we've always liked hiding musical easter eggs in tracks kind of headphone candy that you know you you wouldn't necessarily notice from just uh hearing it on the radio or 
streaming it. But then actually, once you start to peel away those layers, there's things hidden in there for the for the nerds out there. Shout yeah. out to the nerds. That's going to be a, a pearl of a detail. I think <laughs> yeah. that some people will be telling other people. Think, oh, no, yeah, as you said though, it. if you know, if you've been, if you've heard that noise before, you know what it. You know, it will take you somewhere. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think it's a very hopeful feeling, you know, it's a very yeah. exciting sound, I think, for people that have had kids. And I think it was important to, you know, to have a representation of hope in the song. I think because it came from such a such a strong feeling of, uh, you know, of devastation, it felt important for me that the song needed to build towards kind of a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. So. Mm. It would be good to hear the mastered version again, I guess, um, to, you know, with, to, with that of that with, section, with, with all these elements combined. Another effect which appears here is a reverse reverb on the vocals. Which is something we got from Kate Bush, actually, from Hounds of Love from the ninth wave, which is the second half of the Kate Bush record Hounds of Love. And it's a fact which we've used on a few records, but I just love it. I love the kind of ghostly trails that it creates. Mm. interesting hearing it because it's such a rocking track and you hear all the elements and you can hear the brass there but they're also very much a part of this cacophony i suppose yeah. you know, musical cacophony. Yeah. but it, you know what i mean i mean it's it so you you haven't let them dominate over, yeah dominate yeah. or overtake everything yeah you kept true to what you were trying to do with the, the exactly trust. i mean i i think something that is particularly true with this song is that it needed to feel like something that we could play live and i think there's definitely tracks on the record which were written more um as studio kind of moments but with this song it was always something that w was very strong in the back of my mind was that it needed to communicate you know this very primal energy and i think we were successful in in having a lot of that kind of sonic interest happening under the surface but at the front is this song that I knew that would become um, a mainstay of the live set. Mm. Yeah, interesting stuff. Um, it's so good to be able to come back to the brain yard and go through a billion heartbeats. Um, we do have some repeat questions that we like to ask people that I think maybe I should ask now. One of which is about advice and whether you have been given or you would pass on any particular advice with regard to just a technical thing or a more general Thing. It can be anything that's stuck with you that you think it would be useful to, to hear. I mean, coming from a song songwriter's point of view, something I, a piece of advice I wasn't necessarily given, but something that I would give is just record everything. Just make voice notes, create a paper trail because you never know when you'll need it. As I was saying earlier, I'm still raiding hard drives from 
years ago and I'm still finding things in there that have gone on to become other things. There's lyrics on this record that were written for serotonin. There's chords that were written for Radlands, you know. It's always been a big part of my creative process to kind of go on a treasure hunt through things I've made in the past and and salvage things because even if a song doesn't make it at the time I always find it goes on the scrap heap and you never know when you're, when you're going to need to remove parts from it to build other beings musical mm. beings so that would be my nugget of advice is just keep a record of everything don't throw it away I mean that's and that's why we've been able to explore this in such detail is <laughs> because there is a, a kind of paper trail yeah. as yeah. you would describe it and Matt do you have I've been agonising over this question since September because <laughs> uh, I don't think I can. Uh, I think I'm not sure anyone can beat David Wrench. <laughs> but that's a reference to the interview yes, we did with your, David Wrench. Exactly, yeah, yeah. What did David Wrench say? Uh, someone said to him to stop being so stoned. Right? Yes, it's yeah, a classic and it, one. And, it, like, and, then, yeah. and then suddenly became the most in-demand yeah, mix, mixing yeah. engineer. <laughs> yeah. um, but a couple of things that came to mind was use your ears not your eyes when you're mixing and just listening i often turn the screen off yeah quite a lot that's an interesting thing yeah. and that's very much a modern uh yeah, situation well, it, or uh, by modern i mean the last though, 20 yeah. years yeah or absolutely yeah um, but i mean when i was first a sort of an assistant engineer we, i did a couple of sessions on tape having done quite a lot with computers prior to that and I mean, it's such a different atmosphere everyone's just listening mm. not going you know it's yeah. like that thing when you're in the pub and there's a TV screen on and it's on silent and no one can see it. But after about 10 minutes, everyone's looking at it. I always almost find it even like watching a timeline. I'm sort of preempting like edits and things like that in my head that affect the way I'm listening. I'm not listening to the whole. I'm listening for, oh yeah, that ed I couldn't hear that edit. Yeah, that bit of tuning on the vocals, fine. But you're still splitting things up into components as opposed to listening to it a whole. That was one thing. Um, mm. Just turn your screen off every now and then. Yeah. It's, and it, actually relaxes the room as well yeah in my experience um and what's the other one the other one was oh yeah learn something new every week so be it a little bit of gear or a plug-in or muck around on an instrument you know just something new in your arsenal every, i try and do every I try, week that's well you know that's, that's good. you know really get into the the workings of a new plug-in you've bought or it can be really small something really small you know that you can then add to what you do mm. uh which i think i that advice comes from Pro Tools expert podcast, I believe. <laughs> I said, got to share Heads the love. up, guys. Great guys. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And um, another regular question we like to ask people is whether there's a piece of kit that they're particularly attached to or you know, can't live without. There's a synthesizer which appears on this record. It's, it's almost the only synthesizer which appears on this record, which is just sat here next to us. I believe we talked about it um, on wrong side of the tracks it's a synth which is a collaboration between oberheim and dave smith and it's called the ob6 and it's essentially um for people that are familiar with a prophet like a prophet six it's essentially got the, the kind of architecture of a prophet six but with the sound palette if you will of, of an oberheim um, and it's it's just an amazing keyboard which actually there's one patch i think it's 007 which is on almost every song on the album <laughs> <laughs> So, so that's 007. I think it's 007. So, <laughs> so that that keyboard. I, I don't know if I go as far as to say the album couldn't have been made without it, but it wouldn't sound the same without it because mm. it is it's um, ever present on the record. Yeah, very interesting. And Matt, do you have a piece of kit that you're particularly attached to? Or 
I'm not very attached to things mm. like that. As long as I've got some way of recording, you know, something will come up. But I, I mean, I like gear, but I, I've never let it get in the way of actually making stuff or you know, or waiting to have something. But um, I've just remembered there's a guitar pedal, which is the Digitech Space Station. Yeah, in relation to this record, though, there's that. That's the, the OB6. The Space Station's um, all over the record. And the uh, 70s AKG C414s yeah. that we have. They, EB. We use them on everything. And they are Which we bought from amazing. Ealing Studios, yeah, Ealing, from Ealing, Ealing TV, studios. film studios. And they'd been used on a lot of Ealing comedies. Um, How interesting. And yeah. They had quite a lovely story. There was, there was a guy whose dad had been the sound technician on a lot of the Ealing comedies and he passed away and the son didn't necessarily want top dollar for these mics be one of them to go to a to the right home and i i got in touch with him and we picked them up and they're just the most incredible sounding mics and we, we've used them on vocals we've used them on a lot of guitars on the drums i mean on anything they just it's really versatile really yeah. warm big frequency range yeah and they look awesome but yeah most important thing <laughs> <laughs> are they here we should take some pictures of yeah them. Uh, are they here you, if people you try and borrow them all the time oh, <laughs> <laughs> they're often on loan one, loan to different yeah, producers one was in me the other day and yeah as i came in i was like oh okay they're not here right <laughs> uh they're in demand yeah i've actually just remembered there's a there's a keyboard that's in the corner it's a juno 106 that actually does appear at the beginning of this song and then it quite rapidly disappears but that keyboard has quite an interesting story, which is oh, yeah. that we bought it with our first record advance in about 2005. And we bought it in Manchester from a place called, I want to say it's called Johnny Roadhouse. It was an instrument shop on the Oxford Road. I want mm. to say. It's but there's called- a venue called the Roadhouse and it might have been mm. just around the corner from there. Perhaps it was linked is, to it. Yeah. And we bought, we bought it. I mean, they've they've sort of skyrocketed in value, but we got it for about four hundred quid. I think Kevin Parker is largely responsible with why they cost a lot more now than they used right. to. But we bought it and we used it on our first album. And uh, when we went on tour, it disappeared, and we just assumed it had been lost to the ether. On our last UK tour, we played a show at Leeds University, and when we were in soundcheck one of the in-house student techs came up to us and he said, I think we might have something that belongs to you. <laughs> and that synth had been sitting in the attic of Leeds University Student Union for best part of 15 years. Wow. And no one had taken it. And I think it still had our old set lists from that tour in the in the box. And it was this really wonderful journey that the keyboard took and ended up being reunited with us. And it reappeared again on this song. Yeah, but it's, it's wow. sat there in the corner. So, so. it's and it's on a billion hard It's well travelled and luckily retained its value because it's not been used for fifteen years <laughs> as well. There is some hope in there is hope there in, is the hope in the world. There are good people it, it, around oh. the Leeds area. Yeah, there's hope. Fantastic. Maybe it helps being buried away in a, or not, but never hidden away in an attic somewhere. Sounds so, good to me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, thank you so much for for reconvening. Here pleasure. at the Brain Yard. Yeah, thanks um, for having us. Thanks for having continue us. Continue yeah. our conversation. Oh, it's a, a real pleasure. And we should play out with some music. Um, what track should we should we play? Why don't we play the first song that we released from the record, Hospital Radio? 
I think that sounds like Given that I've been in hospital since we last met. Yeah, that's a very good point. And luckily, thankfully, you are still Listening to the radio, listening to you. Oh, (laughs) what a charmer. (laughs) Excellent. Thanks again. Uh, Thank you. Matt, please. And here is Hospital Radio, Mystery Jets. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you tape notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Tape Notes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.